This is Orson Welles, ladies and gentlemen. Out of character to assure you that the War of the Worlds has no further significance than as the holiday offering it was intended to be. The Mercury Theater's own radio version of dressing up in a sheet and jumping out of a bush and saying boo. Starting now, we couldn't soap all your windows and steal all your garden gates by tomorrow night, so we did the best next thing. We annihilated the world before your very ears and utterly destroyed the CBS. You will be relieved, I hope, to learn that we didn't mean it and that both institutions are still open for business. So goodbye, everybody, and remember, please, for the next day or so, the terrible lesson you learned tonight. That grinning, glowing, globular invader of your living room is an inhabitant of the pumpkin patch, and if your doorbell rings and nobody's there, that was no Martian. It's Halloween. Radio Drome. Welcome to another episode of Radio Drome. I am Josh Hadley. With me, as always, is Canada's number one radioactive ape, the Peter. Yes, absolutely. You're still radioactive, huh? Yeah, a little bit. I'm uh, I'm I'm Chernobyling a little bit. The uh, the Geiger counter isn't picking up quite as much, but but you still probably shouldn't be shouldn't be around me. The half life on that stuff is just murder, isn't it? I know, I know. Are you the ape that flips off the helicopter? I'm the, the ape that uh, questions if she can make a baby. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> See, I, I actually figured you were the ape that would smack around Ned Flanders. Sure. I'm a every ape from chimpanzee to chimpanzee. Chimpanzee. <laughs> <laughs> All right, as you can hear giggling there, this the the giggling Mimi Cecil is here. Yeah, the giggling Mimi. Because like screaming Mimi, but you weren't screaming, you were giggling. Oh, okay. No. I'm like I'm like I am not the the chick from the Drew Carey show. <laughs> that's not what that's not what I was implying. Relax. I thought he was just saying uh, meme like a boomer. Uh, <laughs> like a boomer in your pants. Never mind. We're getting oh, we're, we're yeah. not even. <laughs> Silence, Boomer. Guys, if you want to help out the show, go to adamandeve.com. Use the promo code DROME, and you will get 50% off of a single item, three free DVDs, a free sex swing, and free U.S. shipping, all for using the promo code DROME at adamandeve.com. Plus, if you're surfing the Internet in today's day and age, you pretty much need a VPN. What's a VPN? It's a virtual protection network, more or less. I don't know if that's what it actually stands for, but I don't care. If you go to 1201beyond.com backslash VPN. It will take you to NordVPN, where you can get a great deal of only $2.99 a month for a three-year plan. That's 75% off, which will allow you to access region-locked content, protect your data, maybe go to some sites that you maybe shouldn't be going to. <clears throat> you have to go to 1201beyond.com backslash drome, D-R-O-M-E, V-P-N. This will help us out a lot, and you get a great deal on a VPN, and you really should have one. So tonight what I want 
want to talk about, I want, I mainly want to talk about one filmmaker, but I know you guys are going to want to talk about a couple of others. I started thinking when we did the Richard Stanley, you know, the career he should have had, it got me thinking other filmmakers who basically have had their careers stolen from them. Now, this doesn't mean, you know, because lots of directors have problems with, continual problems with the studio or their, their movies get recut or whatever. I mean, directors whose careers have been taken from them. The main one I can think of that I think everyone would think of is Orson Welles. This man should have had the greatest career in the history of cinema. Just never did. Partially due to his own actions and partially due to the way Hollywood works. Orson Welles is one of the greatest filmmakers of all time. And you can call me a cinema nerd for that. In pop culture, he's more thought of as a joke. He's thought of from the critic. He's thought of from SCTV or his drunk outtakes from the Paul Masson commercials. Ah, the French. He doesn't say anything. Oh, He's, the French. He was partaking a little bit too much of the product before that commercial. Oh, I love that commercial. Bring me a jury that can say in July and I'll go down <laughs> on you. You people are pests. You people are pests. No, money <laughs> you is could, worth you, this. You can almost hear him throwing the script in the background a little yes. bit up in the air. We're, but we're little place a, where Mrs. He, Buckley lives. Peas grow there. This is a bunch of you know that? We're onto a, a big dish of peas. <laughs> you have that, but then people forget just how much Orson Welles did for cinema. Oh, I don't I don't forget Unicron. No. He's, I'm not talking I don't Unicron. The, the voice cameo he did for Manowar. Those two songs, I don't even like Manowar, but he adds a weird gravitas to he that. He actually does. You know? I'm, I'm genuinely complimenting his work on those. Defender is a great song. Do you know why he did those Manowar songs? Because his, like, son or something? His was... granddaughter. That was his granddaughter, granddaughter's yeah. favorite band. Wow. That's cool. <laughs> and he, he did it as a favor for his granddaughter. That's kind of sweet. Look at Orson Welles. So he's, he starts off in radio. He's so popular. He's on every network. Now there's only three radio networks at the time, but he is on every network, which you could, you would not see today. You would not see one performer that's on the same, that's on ABC, NBC, Fox, and whatnot, all on the same night doing something. You, you wouldn't see that today. He was so popular and it was so difficult because these were all shot in New York City and, you know, none of the buildings are by one another he would be like on cbs at 6 p.m and he'd do a you know everything's live at this point he would do a live radio show and then he would have to rush over to do something on nbc at 8 p.m and then rush all the way across town to do something at abc at 10 p.m and he found again and now this is thinking out of the box traffic was so bad at at this point and probably because of people like him doing this it's now illegal but back then you could hire an ambulance even if you weren't sick so he would pay an ambulance to use its sirens to get him from building to building to building faster <laughs> now that's thinking out of the box isn't it yeah it's a little uh, morally corrupt i suppose but it's smart it's not the right thing to do but uh, it if works you, if you don't have a conscience you can do it. You know, and then he made War of the Worlds, the radio show, which all hyperbole aside, you know, I know the panic has been exaggerated. If you guys have ever listened to it, that is an amazing hour of radio. And nothing like that had been attempted before. That whole fake news broadcast, which is why the whole, quote, panic happened, he, he was just 
he was always thinking of things no one else had done. He was, uh, he was always a forward thinker. A lot of movie techniques that we have now exist because of him. He's, uh, he just, um, he got screwed over. I mean, there's, there's really no, no way around it. You bring up film techniques. Citizen Kane, you know, yes, lots of people make fun of it. Oh, it's boring. It's not the greatest film. Okay. No, it is not the greatest film ever made, but it might be one of the most important films ever made. He invented so many cinema techniques that are standard nowadays, that are total standard that every filmmaker uses, he invented. And it was all because he didn't know he couldn't. He kept being told when he would tell his cinematographer how he wanted a shot to look, they're like, you can't do that. And he and the cinematographer would figure it out, and they found out, actually, you can. He kept getting told, you can't do that. A camera can't do that. A camera can't go there. You can't have three different levels of parallax and keep them all in focus. And he's like, want to bet? <laughs> so, I mean, Citizen Kane, whether you like the story or not, I say every person out there should watch that movie and marvel at how beautiful it is, how different it was. We grew up watching cinema and all of these techniques that he that he pioneered. Can you imagine what a 1941 audience thought watching Citizen Kane? The few people that actually got to see it, I'll get into that in a moment. It looked insane. And that's probably why a lot of them were telling him, hey, you know, you can't do this, you can't do that, because a lot of this, well, as you said, hasn't hadn't been done before. So I'm sure it was really incredible to see. I can definitely say, at least as far as the technical side of it goes, Citizen Kane is a marvel to look at as a film, especially when you consider how ahead of its time it is. Fantastic. I think one thing that is unfortunately going to be lost on a lot of today's audiences, and this is a problem that I run into, uh, where you get somebody that sees the movie now, you know, they've been watching movies for like 20 years or whatever, and then they go and they watch it now, and they're like, oh, it's so cliche. And it's like, don't you realize that this is the movie that, you know, one of the movies that started the cliches. This is the movie that all... It can't be a cliche if it wasn't a cliche yet when it was made. Right, but you get people that will do that, that will legitimately argue, this is so cliche. No, all the movies that you have seen took their cliches from there. Yeah. And so it, it really, that really bothers me that they're not putting it in the context of, oh, maybe this movie was made 50 years before the movie that I saw and it, but you know, the movie that I saw that I like, it borrowed from this. No, a real great way to travel through time. There's a very easy way to simplify people like that. They're the, it's speed two with a bus people. And then Citizen Kane basically was his greatest achievement. At the same time, that's the movie that destroyed his career. He was pissed off at William Randolph Hearst. Hearst was a piece of shit, really. He he invented what we call yellow journalism, you know, which is basically what Fox News and Alex Jones and stuff are, where it's journalism in the barest sense that we take a fact and then make up everything else we want around that fact. Hearst owned almost all of the media. Remember, TV, it does exist at this point, but it's not the powerhouse it would become. Right. Hearst owned over 80% of every newspaper and radio station in America. If Hearst did not want you to know something, it didn't make the news. And if he wanted to destroy you, he would absolutely destroy you. This pissed off Wells and screenwriter Herman Mankiewicz. They basically based Kane on Hearst. I mean, there's other people mixed in there, but it's more or less Hearst to ridiculous degrees. Like, okay, you know how Rosebud 
has become such a cliche. Mm. How many people out there know what Rosebud actually was a symbol of in the movie? Probably not a lot of people. I don't even know if I remember. It's the sled. No, I'm talking about what it symbolizes. The frozen peas. Oh, no, it, it's, okay, it symbolizes his youth. No, 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 I'm talking in, because I'm talking about Hearst here. Because, see, Hearst had a mistress, oh. and he called her vagina his rosebud. Oh. Oh. I That's thought it was just how... uh, it was chock full of country goodness and green penis. <laughs> the script is terrible. I'm taking a few for the road. <laughs> what luck. There's a French fry stuck in fry my beard. stuck in my beard. <laughs> That kind of detail pissed off Hearst so much. You want to talk about unethical with the ambulance thing? Mm. Hearst actually tried to have Wells set up as a pedophile. Oh, shit. To take him down. Because he was so mad. Orson Welles was in New York for some kind of an event. I don't remember what the event was. And a police officer came up to him and said, don't go to your hotel room tonight. Wells is like, what? He goes, don't go to your hotel room tonight. Hearst hired a 13-year-old girl to be waiting naked in Orson Welles' bed, and a photographer was sitting in the closet from one of Hearst's papers. And then when Welles was going to come into the room, the 13-year-old naked girl would jump on him, the photographer would get out, get the photos, and he would completely destroy him. Oh, this God. police officer, because of all the corruption, got wind of this, and his conscience wouldn't let him do this. Oh, that, well, okay. It's good cops out there. What a surprise. But that says... Hurst will pull no punch punches. He also went to the heads of every studio because Citizen Kane was made by RKO Studios. One, of, you know, they made King Kong and that, but they were still one of the, they were sort of canon at the time. They yeah. were one of the mini, they were one of the mini majors. And he went to Universal and Warner Brothers and you know all that. And he told them, if any of you distribute this movie or also at this time the studios could own theaters so you know like universal could own a movie theater hearst told them if any of you show this movie you will never receive advertising in my papers again and i will destroy every single one of you Damn. so citizen kane barely came out only a few independent theaters carried the movie because hearst was determined to destroy this film and hearst's reach the shadow the taint he put on Orson Welles would last the rest of his career. So Welles made Citizen Kane as his greatest achievement and also the albatross that drugged the rest of his career into the toilet. Oh, man. Hearst was always an asshole. Hearst made a career, and one of his own quotes was, I made a career making enemies. Okay. okay he was not a, he was not a nice person. So it's he just, was not it's a as, nice man. Um, it's as simple as it seems, I guess. Orson Welles would then go on, he would make studio films because Citizen Kane became such a critical darling, at, you know, years after the fact, that he would go and make all of these studio films and he would never get creative control again. They would recut his movies. They would screw him over. But to the people that mattered, they knew it. Mm. They knew what Orson Welles was. For instance, Janet Lee on Touch of Evil. Touch of Evil was a relatively low-budget universal film, only for half a million bucks. And back then, you know, that's still kind of expensive, but it's a lower-end film. Right. He wanted Janet Lee for the female lead to play opposite Charlton Heston. Well, Janet Lee's agent turned down the role because the money was garbage. Lee, when she found out about this, was furious. Mm. She she fired her agent telling him, being directed by Orson Welles is more important than a goddamn paycheck. 
you have things like this that I want to be directed by Orson Welles. Right. While the studio, because like, okay, t- have either of you seen Touch of Evil, 1959? It's been a while. I, I know I've seen it at some point, but it's been quite a long time. Same. I'm pretty sure I've seen it, but it's been a while. Universal, they had Charlton Heston at the peak of his career. You had Janet Leigh at the peak of her career. You had Marla Dietrich, who they didn't even know was in the movie, because Marla Dietrich was just paid to do a one-day walk-on gig because she was friends with Orson Welles, and because the budget was so low, she was going to do it for scale. Mm. All of a sudden, Universal is seeing the dailies, and they go, we have Marla Dietrich in this movie? (laughs) But because they're only paying her scale, they can't advertise with her, so they actually went to her, said, we'll give you a ton more money if we can put your name on the poster. Mm. And Welles is directing, writing, and starring in in this movie. Oh, and Touch of Evil was also a, uh, how do I put this, a challenge to Wells and himself. He went to the producer and said, I don't want your good scripts. I want the worst script you have. I want to see if I can make a great movie out of a bad script. Touch of Evil became a classic after Wells rewrote it. And the thing is, Universal hate this movie they hated it they recut it against wells wishes it was eventually a as close to a director's cut as we'll ever get came out in 1998 but all of the footage wasn't there anymore so it's not really a director's cut it's just as close as we can get they 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 hated it so much that charlton heston and janet lee are not the stars Mm. why are they not the stars why are they part of this ensemble piece so in the recuts they forced Charlton Heston and Janet Lee to come back and shoot new scenes, so this became a Janet Lee Charlton Heston movie instead of them just being part of an ensemble. And they wrecked parts of this film. Like for instance, Orson Welles invented cinema techniques. You know how we take for granted a car being pulled by a trailer while the actors do their dialogue? Right. That was Welles. Before that, driving scenes were always like that scene in the driving scene in Airplane where it was always rear projected and looks fake. Right. What did Universal do when they recut the movie? They deleted the scenes with that and had them reshot by the assistant director as rear projection. Oh, man. Then they released the movie as a literal B-film, as the bottom half of a double bill with the female animal. Who's ever heard of the female animal? We're still talking about Touch of Evil today. Way to go, Universal. Wow. It's yeah, kind of- that's, that's definitely proof of how, how screwed over Orson Welles has been uh, in his career, not only not only with the Citizen Kane stuff, but with his the movies he would be end up making in the future. This is something that just it continues to go on in the movie industry. You have something, they're in the business to make money, but they will screw over the creatives just because, and will end up losing money and often losing substantial amounts of money because they just, they, they have a petty disagreement or they don't get along. Like I understand if you have a creative difference and you want to alter something, but there are a lot of instances where, uh, somebody wants to make a name for themselves or they don't, in this case, they don't like the director for one reason or another. And then they alter the film and then the film comes out and it flops. But it's like all you're doing is, is shooting yourself in the foot. You're hurting yourself. That's not the way they see it. And I, I'm going to go back to Touch of Evil for a moment. That has, no, this hadn't been done at this time. Now we've got way longer than this. The opening sequence is an uninterrupted three-minute tracking shot that establishes all of the locations, establishes all of the characters, and has action in it, and it's an uncut tracking shot. That had never been done before. Also the fact that now this, he didn't invent this thing, but when Wells was in Europe shooting a movie, he saw that they'd invented a handheld 
handheld kind of camera. It's still huge by what we would consider handheld today. He was the first American film to ever use a handheld camera before on Touch of Evil. And yet this was the fucking B picture under the female animal. He he would go on to to basically be exiled from Hollywood because he he did not suffer fools lightly. And the way he put it was, the fools are the ones with all of the money. He said one of his biggest problems was always finding money. He wanted to make these movies. Nobody wanted to give him money for them. Anytime it was any t- anything dangerous, anytime it was anything unique, anytime it was anything different, no one wanted to give him money for it. So that's why he kind of became a joke in the 70s when he would narrate all of these documentaries and appear in Bugs Bunny cartoons and things like that. Why did he do that? Because he used the money from that to shoot his own goddamn films. Well, yeah, sometimes Which unfortunately, you, you, gotta, you gotta work to get the work that you want. But unfortunately, that undercut his credibility because now he was becoming, oh, that's that guy that narrates Bible documentaries. Oh, man. Look at a movie like, you know, we just, it was started in 1968 and shot for about 15 years, Other Side of the Wind. It, we just saw it last year when it was released. He also invented found footage. Hmm. This was the first found footage movie. And Other Side of the Wind is a genius film. And I, I to, part of me says I can totally see why no one would give him money for this mm. because the entire film is an indictment of Hollywood, the perpetual system of of fellatio that it requires on everyone, and how the system just chews you up and eats and spits you out. Right. Because he was so bitter by this point, because he basically that this part is all self inflicted. He forgot to pay his taxes for oh. quite a few years, oh, so no. he whoops. he ran yeah whoops. So he ran to Europe to avoid the IRS, basically exiled to Europe for quite a few years. And he made a bunch of unique movies over there in Europe. And then eventually when he decided to come back to the States, the IRS controlled him. That's also another reason why a lot of those narration gigs were, those were IRS gigs. Mm. Literally he had, and I don't mean an IRS agent like you think of it. He had an IRS Hollywood agent that would find him gigs to get him money to pay the IRS back. Mm. So he basically became an IRS contract player for a while. This really all came to a head. Ever since Kane, he's never had final cut on any of his American films. His European films were different. He was way thought of better in Europe than he was in America. It was at the 1971 Oscars. He was given a Lifetime Achievement Award. And he, he, he claimed he was in Europe shooting a movie. In reality, he couldn't bring himself to actually be there because he was so pissed off. So he sent his friend John Houston to accept the award for him. Mm. And Houston, you know, very, he was very eloquent. And, you know, Houston has that, that way of speaking where he could, Houston can almost insult you and you don't even realize it <laughs> because he has, because he's so freaking eloquent. Mm. Houston gave a speech at the 71 Academy Awards basically saying, how dare you people give him a Lifetime Achievement Award when none of you will actually hire him? How dare you? Was basically the speech he gave them. That's pretty real. And he, he, it's like, that's, that's ballsy, man. It is. That's ballsy. Another thing Orson Welles invented, because no one else had, what we think of as music video editing style. Hmm. His movie F for Fake is all edited like we would think an 80s music video would be edited. Oh. This was in the early 70s. And this was a documentary. And put that word in quotes. 
Have either have either of you seen F for Fake? No, I don't think I have. No. Here's the genius thing about it. It's a documentary that's not a real documentary, but it's not a fake documentary. It's a documentary on art forgery. Oh. And Wells brilliantly sets you up at the beginning of it. He's the on-camera narrator, and he says, for the next hour, everything you see in this is 100% true. The movie's 90 minutes long, <laughs> and, he, and he reveals at the end that the entire thing last 30 minutes have all been made up but he didn't lie to you that's true he told you everything for the next hour is absolutely true (laughs) that's pretty clever i'm i'm sorry but that's brilliant it is he had a reputation of being very difficult on set he once narrated this this religious documentary called the late great planet earth in the 70s and he was the on-camera narrator and this was one of those money ones the thing is he was so difficult to work with he was bitching about everything complaining about everything but once you said action, he did it perfectly. Mm. And then, and then as soon as you said cut, he would start complaining again. <laughs> so on camera, he still brought it. I mean, Mel Brooks found out. Have either of you ever seen History of the World Part One? Oh God, yes. yeah. Okay. Remember how? It. What's next? <laughs> <laughs> Jews in space. Well, that was space. Well, that, that was for part, part two, two, but yeah, is that part two? Oh, okay. Well, that yeah. was the, the tie-in. The, that was the trailer for part, for part two, two that never that happened. Never happened. But, but, uh, oh God, yeah, just freaking hilarious movie. I, I actually think because the Orson Welles was the narrator on that, and I think he has one of the greatest lines when it shows all the monkeys masturbating. He just goes our forefathers <laughs> mel brooks even learned what an absolute professional orson wells was he hired orson wells to do the narration for the whole movie he was paying him five thousand dollars a day and it was supposed to be a five-day shoot so twenty five thousand dollars for this narration gig okay and this is in the 70s he said about four hours and that was all it took wells he did every he did everything mel brooks asked he did it all perfectly and he still got to keep all the 25,000 bucks and Mel was like I could have only paid him $5,000. He didn't realize what a professional he was that Wells could get all this narration done in just a couple of hours oh, instead of 5 days. That's how much of a professional Wells was even if he didn't want to be in it. I mean, Transformers the movie, you brought it up earlier. He had he literally had no idea what he was doing. I mean, he he gave an interview where he said he, I'm a I think I'm a toy that eats other toys. <laughs> that Technically, yeah. Transformers are one big uh, toy commercial. It it really is. And I mean, that is probably the best description of Unicron ever. But at the same time, can you say at all that he half-assed that, even though he was dying at the time? No way. It was great. It was great voice work. Didn't he he wasn't phoning in? Even the commercials that we were joking about with the the frozen peas and all that, like he's trying to make it better, but he's like, Mm -hmm. this copy is terrible. He's Mm -hmm. like, this. who wrote this? It's it's just, you can't talk like that. Mm -hmm. So I think that he was trying to actually make it better but when he's given the delivery he's given a great delivery people held him in such awe that he guest hosted the tonight show a couple of times in the early 80s and on one of them he had an andy kaufman on andy kaufman was on taxi at this time andy kaufman was literally so in awe of being in the same room with orson wells i'm not kidding you can find this clip on youtube he drops the act you see genuine andy kaufman in awe of orson wells oh, wow 
Moonlighting was one of the last things that Orson Welles did before he died. He had more stuff come out that he'd shot earlier that came out after, but that was one of the last things he shot was his appearance on Moonlighting. You know, we've had lots of guest stars on this show, huge names, blah, blah, blah. It was funny how every single crew member who didn't even work that day showed up on the day Orson shot mm. because they wanted to see Orson Welles shooting Moonlighting. Well, yeah, he had He's a, like, immense it, respect from the... Uh, industry and people that wanted to to work in it because they knew what he could do. Yeah, and yet these were the same people who would not hire him or give him director's cut or that was the thing, and yet he was the exact opposite. Like I said, he was grumpy, he was hard to get along with, but he loved to discover new talent. Mm -hmm. He loved to discover people. He he literally would have people like uh, how Gary Graver got involved with him. You know, Gary Graver shoots, you know, shot hundreds and hundreds of movies under pseudonyms and things. Gary Graver was his cinematographer for the last 15 years of Wells' life. He was discovered because Gary Graver was this stupid kid in Hollywood who said, who called him up one day and said, Mr. Wells, I would love to work with you. He goes, how old are you? I can't remember how old he was, like 18 or whatever. Mm. He goes, here's my hotel room. Come up here. And they just started working together. Oh, shit. He's like, I'll give you a shot. Orson Welles was a national treasure, and I think Hollywood screwed this man over so bad. And I I don't like the fact that he did become a joke. Because you talk to anyone, I mean, the three of us are relatively older. You talk to like an 18 or 20-year-old, they only know Orson Welles from the parodies. Mm -hmm. And I hate that. That's unfortunate. It sucks, uh, plain and simple. I mean, there's no really way to, to beat around the bush. Uh, they screwed him over. Uh, he had a director, um, a visionary who could have made uh, some, he could have made more influential, amazing films, but, uh, they shot him, him and themselves in the foot by not allowing them to do so. And, uh, it sucks. It really sucks. And as much as I goof on him, I mean, I kind of, you know, I goof on my friends too. So yeah. that doesn't necessarily mean that I have no respect for him. Actually, it, like, I respect him more. You know, I just, it's just, it's also, there are things that are fun to, to poke fun at. Uh, doesn't mean I don't respect the guy. Well, you, you can't not make fun of when the, when those outtakes from the Paul Masson commercials came out. I mean, That's he was drunk. He was drunk off of his ass and still going, I can shoot. <laughs> yeah, he was completely blitzed. But I think the thing is, the difference being that I and you guys, you know Orson Welles as the director, as the voice actor, as the talent. And now, as you said, the majority of people that are growing up now, they only know him by the parodies. They think mm-hmm. that he's a joke. No, I think that sucks. I think people need to step out of their shell and seek out his actual work and not just see him as a, as a meme. I think that's really unfortunate. Because he really is an immensely talented man, has worked on a lot of very influential things, has done a lot of great voice work. And yeah, sure, there's some candid bloopers of him giving people crap for a poorly written, uh, poorly written peas commercial and for being drunk for a, uh, a sparkling champagne that's meant to be kind of a, a cheap, like it's a cheap wine. Let's just say it. Paul Masson was a bullshit cheap wine, but he still did it. We will work. sell no wine before it's time. Exactly. Oh <laughs> but we God. will sell it in a box. We will sell it to you in a box, and with a little bit of magic, I will make it disappear. But then... <laughs> that was another critic one. But he's great. Thing, Orson Welles is, is genuinely fantastic. And you know what? If anything, he shows that he's even the best at being a blooper reel, because some of his like stuff when he's backstage, when he's drunk, or when he's giving a director shit, 
for the the script being poor. Like it's better than a lot of other celebrities and a lot of other other actors and directors meltdowns. Like his his still hold up better than a lot of more recent meltdowns do. Could you imagine? I mean, he died in 1985. Could you imagine if he made it to the Twitter era? Oh God. Oh my God. I d- Could you imagine Orson Welles with a Twitter account? I, I don't want to, to because I just, I, if Twitter disappeared tomorrow, the world would be a better place. Oh, I don't, I don't disagree with that. I'm just saying, like, there are certain people like Hunter Thompson, George Carlin, Orson Welles, I think would have been amazing in the Twitter age. Yeah. Well, Car- they would have. Well, yeah, like this past week, Carlin again called it way back. I think it was on his, uh, parental advisory, um, comedy special where he did the, uh, you know, I don't think that they should call that thing in the middle of a street a person hole cover. Exactly. And you know what? I saw him live on that tour too. Wow. Uh, I would have loved to have seen him live. I, I, I did. I saw Carlin live in the late nineties, like 96, 97, somewhere around there. It, it was great. L- let's talk about another filmmaker that never had the career he should have. Now this one I'm going to add though. Most of his wounds were self-inflicted. Mm. Fred Decker. Oh, I was going to mention Fred Decker. That was going to be my uh, go-to for the next one. If you think about it, Fred Decker came out of the gate strong with Night, Night of the Creeps. Night of the Creeps, know, Monster but, Squad, really but, good but stuff. But both of those bombed. But both of those bombed. Mm. And, you know, he, he, he was writing other things. Like, he wrote the first two House movies. He wrote the never-made Godzilla 3D movie from 1983 that never got made. Uh, you can actually find storyboards for that. I would have loved to have seen it, but it would have been a disaster. The, the thing is, I don't think it's Robocop 3 that, that destroyed his career as much as he might say it is. Mm. Cause, okay, Ro- Robocop 3 hurt him. It was after that. You've got the Predator this year, which was just horrendous. But that was another but- studio meddling i'm not so sure about that because even people who've seen the original cut say this thing was a disaster Mm. i don't know man. you don't get if you if you look at both of their history it's not like all the i can't see them coming together again and making garbage it's just it doesn't make sense i can i've seen it they made a pilot for amazon called the edge or it was just called Edge, actually. It was so bad. I actually had to go to IMDb to make sure this was the same Shane Black and Fred Decker that I was thinking of. I couldn't believe how poorly written this thing was. I couldn't believe how Shane Black directed it, how poorly directed this pilot was. I was shut, and they defend it straight up of, you know, that no one wanted to give this a chance. It's like, dude, this was horrible. Okay, and okay, he, is it horrible? or is it Josh horrible because I have like because that's two different things it's horrible I dare you to find a positive review of it online let's put it that I will way. I will see if I can find it and I I will I will see if it's horrible or if it's Josh horrible it's 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 pretty bad I think the worst thing he did was for some reason he, Fred Decker sort of hid this from everybody this was never announced or anything he was a writer on season three of Enterprise for Star Trek he wrote a dozen scripts for that and it was a consulting producer on the episodes he didn't write mm. season three is the worst season of that awful show oh, no. okay that show was bad those Decker scripts were horrendously bad I know Cecil will try and defend them because he likes to defend Fred Decker and Star Trek Enterprise but I'm sorry I, I think Enterprise proves Decker was not infallible. The man, I I think he he pissed all of his talent away. I still like his early stuff. I've not seen anything 
post-Robocop 3 from Fred Decker that I've said, you know what, that wasn't bad. Mm. Everything he's touched has been, oh my god, that's horrible. I don't know. I mean, I don't think that he's... You know, like you said, nobody's infallible. People uh, will occasionally, you know, even people that you like occasionally will make crap. And yeah. for whatever reason, like there are a lot of moving parts, movies and television. There are a lot of things that need to come together for it all to work. So sometimes it's not always one person's fault. Uh, it has some, you know, sometimes it is. You get somebody that steps in and says, hey, we need to have this actor play the lead. And it, it screws up the whole dynamic of everything. But I mean, that's just a, a rough example. But uh, I'm not saying that he's not infallible. I'm not saying that he's not uh, capable of uh, creating crap. But I am erring in favor of the amount of stuff that I've seen and the quality. And after talking to the guy and, you know, listening, you know, he's an articulate, intelligent guy. I know read in numerous places that they were not happy with the handling of uh, the Predator movie. And so I'm going to say that uh, until, if it ever happens, which is probably not, but if the original version, whether the script or something leaks out where uh, the, the cut footage, it's like, here's where it was supposed to be. And if it's like... The script is out. Fred Decker and Shane Black's original script is online. I've read it. That's how I can say this was never going to be a good movie. Mm. Again, this was this was a bad bad script. Again, jo- you know, but but the other thing too, things change while filming. Sometimes there have been movies that they've had a great ending and a great uh, a great beginning and a great ending, and they had to work out the middle while they were filming. There's been numerous films that even big budget films, hell, Men in Black Three, they were writing it while they were filming, and in the end, it <laughs> somehow ended up working. I don't think that entirely the original script and everything may not even be what was originally what was completely going to be so i don't know we don't know because unfortunately we will never even if there is the i mean unless it's a definitive here's what we shot here's the cut thing we think this was awesome and you watch it and it completely sucks then it's like okay well they were just they were wrong but when it comes to decker like i said i think most of his wounds are self-inflicted i think after i think i think robocop 3 broke him and and remember i'm one of the few that's on record i don't think robocop 3 is a great movie but there are parts of that movie that work way better than people remember I will defend parts of RoboCop 3. I think that movie broke him. I think after RoboCop 3, nothing he touched was to the level of pre-RoboCop 3. I, I just, I think Fred Decker, he probably just got so beaten down, he couldn't do it anymore. Maybe lost know? his uh, confidence for a bit or something. Because, yeah, he really did get screwed over badly for that film. Yeah, well, so many things were, I mean, the studio was was going bankrupt at the time. Budgets were cut left and right. They had to, they they, they wanted to be PG-13. It's just, it, uh, it, it was a, uh, a cluster. But I just, I think Fred Decker is one of those guys, I will go on record saying, I don't think he had the career he should have. But I think it's a self-inflicted wound. Mm-hmm. I don't know. We'll, we'll never, you know, we'll never know. I mean, may, if maybe if RoboCop would have been not when the studio was going under, if maybe things would have been different, uh, he may not have taken a, a shot to the uh, to the con- confidence, and maybe he would. Uh, I mean, who knows? You you never know how something like that. That's a, a a large production. That is a beloved property, and it over the years has become a complete joke because people don't know the story behind it. Yeah, and that. That really has to suck where it's like, hey, I directed two of the most beloved horror comedies of all time. Hey, but you did RoboCop 3. You know, it's like. I think in the case of RoboCop 3, though, people remember the bad 
bad parts and they're not remembering the good parts because that splatterpunk scene where Shane Black and Nancy Allen are, are trapped in the middle of the splatterpunk yeah, territory. The opening of RoboCop 3 is solid. Right up the, until the, the opening, uh, there's right up the until humor, Robert John Burke starts speaking. The humor in it's great too when uh when like the, the there's when the OCP guy jumps out the, the window and then they cut the to the limo pulling up and you see the body. Yeah. Like stuff like that is is hilarious and and again I, I I'm now reminded that that it's not RoboCop it's Thinner Cop. The point I'm trying to make is while people remember the loyal as a puppy and all that kind of stuff they aren't remembering some of the actual quality elements of RoboCop three. I think people all they remember of RoboCop three are the really bad parts and, and they're not remembering the parts that and there are but there's a lot of good parts in that movie too. Bladderpunk stuff was was cool. Some of the third act is all right. There's there's a couple moments in there like chases and action sequences that are pretty good. Some you know human stuff with uh, Murphy feel like it wasn't as fleshed out as Fred Decker wanted to be. I know there was a whole idea where he wanted um, Nancy Allen to come back as as a RoboCop as well. I don't know how that how well that would have worked, but I feel like maybe it would have been better because then they would have really pushed full out going absurd and over the top and really doing something bigger and bolder than the first two films so that that maybe could have worked in its favor maybe it would have made it even cheesier but i think it could have been interesting well when he was talking to cecil and i a couple of years ago he said unfortunately he didn't think of that uh, nancy allen as a you know lewis cop until after the movie was shot oh, so they, so you know wh- while they people talk about you should have done this he's like well i didn't think of it till after we wrapped shooting oh, so no. that, that, that was never a possibility for the movie because just no one thought of it at that time so I've, I've heard in an interview where he said if if he really really did some of the like wild ideas that he wanted to do maybe the movie could have been better like you know nancy as uh as lewis cop and and stuff like that if if he had maybe gone through with it instead of it just being something in the the back of his mind well you also got to remember he didn't write the script himself it was co-written with frank pre-crazy frank miller yeah. well i mean it's robocop 3 is basically just an extension of of originally what robocop 2 was going to be it's it was all going to be one big movie and then yeah, kind two of and three two and three were one script it's just that it was too much so they had to split it into two that's because frank miller and, and I, I don't mean didn't understand in a bad way but he didn't understand coming from comic books where you can do all this big stuff in the same issue because it's just drawing panels he didn't understand writing all of this insanity into one script oh, yeah you can't do that in a single movie frank yeah you know it it there are different mediums and uh he over delivered which i consider a good thing that's why i was saying i don't mean he didn't understand in a bad way he just he didn't understand the differences in the mediums but okay, so we'll we'll end tonight. You guys wanted to talk a little bit about Zack Snyder. I don't think he qualifies for this because I don't see how. okay, y- yes, y- yes. There's the Justice League debacle, but other than that, the man has always pretty much had control over his movies. I mean, Sucker Punch. 100% his. Watchmen, it's not even so much a director's cut that was released to DVD. It was just a whole bunch of extra scenes thrown back in. I, I mean, I don't think Zack Snyder has been screwed over other than Justice League and that we can speculate on. But that's a pretty big thing to be screwed up on. Like, that was meant to be his flagship film. This is what he had been working on since Man of Steel and he was trying to create this universe. You had other directors, much like in the MCU, that were 
adding to the films. Like you had, uh, you know, David Ayer's Suicide Squad. Patty Jenkins directed uh, Wonder Woman film. She's a great director in her own right. She directed Monster, a great film. So you you had this great. It seemed like they were build they were building a good universe out of it, built on Zack Snyder's Man of Steel, and you had it connected with Batman versus Superman, and then you you had Wonder Woman come in, you had Suicide Squad come in, and it was going to build all of these characters together, which was all going to culminate for the flagship Justice League, which there was going to be a lot of ideas there. They were going to go for a lot more of the injustice kind of vibe. They wanted that nightmare sequence from Batman versus Superman that was something going to happen. Flashpoint was going to come and fix it. It was going to be like an an arcing storyline. Of course, Snyder's uh, daughter ended up committing suicide. Joss Whedon was brought on to finish the film. He clearly came in with his ideas and his script changes, and a lot of reshoots happened. Very blatantly obvious ones where Ben Affleck is in very good shape and Ben Affleck is booze bloated. Very unfinished looking effects. Uh, recolor coded sequences, a completely changed ending, a completely changed villain. Steppenwolf was going to look different. There was going to be an appearance by Darkseed at some point. Dark side. Uh, Damn it. I read it the way it's spelled out. Uh, Colmater. <laughs> Anti-life. Uh, you're, you're a Colmater. You're a Colmater. You're the Colmaterist, Colmater. Zack Snyder, as far as the superhero stuff goes, is being ostracized. His his Henry Cavill Superman is no longer being used. His Ben Affleck Batman is no longer being used. They've been on the back burner for too long. We're not getting a Man of Steel anymore, a Man of Steel 2 anymore, and we're not getting Affleck as Batman anymore. There's not going to be a Justice League 2 by Zack Snyder. There's not going to be a Batman film or a Superman film by Snyder. He's no longer involved. He's been phased out, and he doesn't want to be phased out. He's clearly been posting a lot of production stuff from Justice League and stuff that he wanted to do. Henry Cavill is still very much on his side. Ben Affleck as well. The, the actors that uh, played other characters like The Flash Cyborg, Wonder Woman. On his side big time. Yeah, yeah, they're all on his side. They all want that, that to continue. They don't want that to just end, but now the studios have decided to do another soft reboot. Now they're phasing elements of his of his contributions to these to the series out of the new Wonder Woman film. We had Superman kind of show up in Shazam, but it wasn't Henry Cavill. So I do feel like even though it's this one movie, Justice League, where he was really screwed over the most on, he's lost so much because of not being able to fully participate on that film because it turned into something completely different. It, it, it tonally, it wasn't uh, like the other films. It was meant to continue the kind of dark aesthetic that Man of Steel and Batman versus Superman had because they were going for more of an injustice thing. And then you implement Aquaman, Shazam, and Wonder Woman, and it, it, they're kind of the brightness that are coming in, and Flash as well, of course, with the Flashpoint arc coming and bringing everything back into full circle and making the world kind of what it was originally meant to be to begin with. It was meant to be a series that begins very dark and ends quite bright after Dark Side is uh, defeated. So I really feel like Snyder was, in a lot of ways, screwed over by studios, by other directors, by by the fan base in a lot of ways. And I do feel like there needs to be some sort of Snyder cut released, at least to give him some justice, some closure, because this was his trilogy. Man of Steel, Batman versus Superman and Justice League was his trilogy. And it was in effect taken away from him. See, I don't think that comes to the same level. You talk about any filmmaker out there who's been making films for more than a few years. They've had a movie that the studio screwed up for them. I'm talking about people whose whole careers have been taken from them or they never got them like you know Fred Decker never really because you know Monster Squad flopped and Night of the Creeps was an underground thing he never really got 
the career he should have. Mm. Orson Welles was the same thing. That's what I'm talking about. Richard Stanley never got the career he deserved. Zack Snyder had it, and he he had one film taken from him. That's not the same thing. But it lost him his franchise entirely. Like, he can't go back to it now, which is, I think, mm-hmm. bullshit. Because his movies, his contributions, made quite a lot of money. He, he was actually financially successful. But because of the overall... Um, it's the mostly the toxicity of the fan base that are like, that's not Superman, that's too dark. And they, they claim to be comic book fans, yet they don't even understand that this is from a run of comics, that this is based on the Injustice stuff. They, they're still living in this bubble that the Christopher Reeves bright blue spandex Superman is the only Superman and that there is no darkness to Superman. There's a lot of darkness to Superman. There's a lot of conflicting factors to that character. And it was great to see something different for a change instead of the usual blue Boy Scout that we've been seeing in movies. Nobody can appreciate anything. I'm a diehard comic book fan. I'm now a comic book writer. And I hate whiny, mopey bitch Superman. He's not a whiny, mopey bitch, But you're though. also Josh. I mean, I don't really you're, see how I hate he's everything. Being, he's not being mopey. I don't hate everything. You hate everything. You hate everything past 1995. Do I hate you? Uh, no. Do but I hate I'm, you? But I'm not, See? But I didn't, I wasn't born after 1995. Well, yeah, I was, uh, neither of us are born after No, but you, but you became a bitch after 1995. Oh, shush. Now, I've been a bitch a very black. long time. One of the reasons why uh, the MCU worked for so many people that had never read a comic book in their life is because there never was an Iron Man movie. There never was. They they had, I mean, the, the Hulk, but the Hulk really, you know, it took a while for that to get going. But like the Avengers and Thor and all that, most people, they knew about them a little bit, but they didn't really know. So when they introduced these versions with the movies, people just kind of, the general audience just kind of went, well, this must just be how they are but when they were introducing a more current version of superman and batman you had people that are like well that's not christopher reeves that's because they were basing their entire knowledge off of these characters on movies that came out decades ago things are different and so that was what zach really wanted to bring forth he wanted to bring these characters into the current age and show how the how today the people of today would react to them and so we had now this goes into him being screwed over with man of steel man of steel did well uh it made i think it made almost a billion dollars but it wasn't uh you know as big which is also funny because then i go back uh, i was talking with somebody about this yesterday because there were all the marvel uh announcements and it's like if you go back and watch the uh or you go back and look into the box office of the first wave of Marvel movies. Iron Man did good, but Hulk did not. Captain America did not. No. It was like they they didn't really, I mean, uh, the Avengers blew up. The Avengers made a crap ton of money, but it was building up to that. So the thing was, it made almost a billion dollars. And then when he did Batman versus Superman, he had people that were like, well, you're rushing into things too quickly and they need to have their own individual films. And it was like, no, I'm not copying the Marvel formula. I'm doing my own thing that is different. And so Mm -hmm. he was introducing these characters. He was showing how Batman was survived. You know, Batman was brought in in this world. He had the two characters go head to head and showing how you had humanity somebody who was really super intelligent and how he would be able to survive against a god and the thing was he with this 
uh, movie or would realize, wait, there are bigger things here. This is a guy who is here. He's not somebody who we should be fighting against. He's somebody who really should inspire hope in people. Everything that's leading into uh, Wonder Woman and Shazam and all that, that was all Zack Snyder's framework. He was producing. Mm. He had a lot of say in them. Uh, in an Aquaman, he had a lot of hands in the production designs, in all the way that everything was supposed to be handled. And it was all leading up into the Justice League movie. And he got really completely screwed over that. And it's such a shame because, uh, you know, his daughter killed him, killed herself, and it's an absolute tragedy. He got screwed over on Batman versus Superman, and then now he got ultimately screwed over on the Justice League. It's something that he really, really worked and invested so much of his time and, and life into making these things happen. And because Marvel, or because DC, they kept looking at how much money Marvel was making and was like, well, if we do it this way, we might be able to make more money. And it's like, no, you're really undercutting your own product. And if you would have stuck with what his designs were in the first place, you would be in a much better place. People would have respect for it because you're doing something that's going in a different direction. It's not just the Marvel films. You guys are just DC fanboys. And I, I don't think any of anything you just said holds water. I'm sorry. I think Zack Snyder's a hack. He wanted to have Batman raped in no, one of his didn't. films. When no, did he, he want Batman he, raped? He said, I think Batman should get raped in prison. That would be an interesting plot. How point. do you know that wasn't just him like talking shit? So you're, you're a moron. Yeah. I'm a less on. You're a moron. Oh my God. Oh God. Oh God. So, okay. Oh, that go up my at, spine. It's, it's 105 degrees out here and I'm still getting the douche chills. <laughs> <laughs> on that note, when it comes to certain filmmakers like Richard Stanley, Fred Decker, although like I said, Fred Decker's are mostly self-inflicted wounds, Orson Welles, I think people should understand, especially when it comes to Orson Welles, just how much this man did for cinema. Without him, movies in general would not be the same. And he's not just the drunken guy offering to go down on a director if he can figure out how to begin a sentence with in July. In July. <laughs> so on, on that note, where can we find Peter sampling the Paul Masson. Oh boy. Uh, obviously on, on Twitter at Cinematica, on YouTube the Cinematicus, Facebook the Cinematicus, of course on 121beyond.com with other fine programming, and on Patreon at Cinematica. Where can we find Cecil? Just your pests. You're all your pests. pests. You can find me over at goodbadflicks.com as well as goodbadflicks on YouTube, Twitch, Twitter, Facebook, and 121beyond.com. Release the Snyder Cut. Agreed. Idiot. You can find me at 1201beyond.com. You can contact this show at 1201beyond at gmail.com. Guys, we have a Patreon. Go and help support the show. And also, if you're going to be using a VPN, which you should, go to 1201beyond.com backslash VPN. It helps us out so much. Thanks, guys. Try to be a cut above. Keep one foot in the gutter, one fist in the gold. Have a good night.
though we've never met, my only son, I hope you know that I would have been there to watch you grow. But my call was heard, and I did go. Now, your mission lies ahead of you, as it did mine so long ago, to help the helpless ones, who all look up to you, and to defend them. Defenders Ride like the wind Fight proud, my son You're the defender God has sent Ride like the wind God has sent
Radiodrome is a 1201 Beyond production. Find it and other great content at 1201beyond.com.